This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Idea Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome back. So today we have an opportunity to talk internationally. You know, Jackie, we often talk about local things, for example, hydrogen in our oil fields or politics, but today we're very fortunate. We're going to elevate the discussion to an international forum. We have a very special guest today, Maria van der Hoven. She is from the Klingendal International Energy Program from the Netherlands. It's a Dutch think tank from The Hague. And Maria was also the former executive director of the International Energy Agency. So welcome, Maria. Well, thank you very much for having me here and for inviting me. Thank you. It's great to have you. I mean, obviously, all of us follow everything that the IA puts out. And over the time that you were there from September 2011, right up to 2015, there was a lot of change in the energy industry. I do want to say that you're here today in Calgary because you were invited as part of the University of Calgary Huskane School of Business and Petronas International Speaker Series. They invited you here to speak to a whole room full of senior executives from the energy industry. Well, it was fascinating to be there, and it was, I think there were about uh, 700 even more people there. And what was fascinating as well, that it's um, it's talking about energy, it's talking about LNG, it's talking about uh, what is happening in the world and about uh, energy transformation and the aspects of that. So I think it was really, it was really great. Well, I know yeah. it was extremely well received, not the least of which because it was hosted by you, Jackie. So well, congratulations the, to both of you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was the moderator. But yep. Uh, yep. yeah, it was great for and Petronas has been doing this for a number of years to bring international speakers into Calgary. Well, with Maria, we're going to cover three important areas. I want to dig in more into the international agency. I mean, certainly I've been using the IAA's data for, well, I hate to admit it, 25 to 30 years, actually, and seen the agency evolve over the years and expand. And Maria, I know you were a big part of that expansion. So we want to talk about that, what the mission of the agency is, how critical that mission is right now in an age of, you mm-hmm. said it, transformation. We want to focus on LNG. And uh, certainly that's a topic of interest to us as Canadians with our LNG Canada project off the West Coast. And then I think we want to talk about Canada and its potential in the world. We know that Canada has had a mixed reputation over the last uh, 10 years, somewhat rocky, and how we can improve on that reputation as we think about ourselves on an international platform. So over to you, Jackie, I'll let you kick it off. Yeah, maybe before we start, you could give uh, our audience a brief summary of yourself and how you came to lead the IA and some of your interests since your term there has ended. Well, you know, I started my, my professional life as a teacher. That was my first job. And uh, after that, I was the uh, director of a training school, for a vocational training school for, for adults. And why do I mention this? Because that was because all these adults had to be retrained as we were in my part of the country going through an energy transformation, going from a coal-based or economy to a gas-based economy. So that's, mm-hmm. And that's now we're talking about the 70s of, of last century. Afterwards, I went into politics. I was a member of parliament for about 11 years, and mm. then I was a cabinet minister. I had two mandates, Minister of Economic Affairs and Energy was my last one, and the first one was education again and, uh, and science. And after that, uh, because of the energy link, I became the uh, executive director of the IEA. 
And the interesting thing of the IEA is that it came into existence in 1974, so it's quite an, an established organization. 1974, well, that was the year of uh, the, the oil crisis, Gulf War, yes. and things like that. And there was really an, a big problem of oil supply. So what a number of uh, countries decided then was that they were going to cooperate and have strategic petroleum reserves, and the IEA was going to handle these. So it started with oil in 1974. And later on, it expanded and it grew more into a real energy agency. But the only members, the only members we have, had to be members of the OECD as well. So you couldn't become a member of the IEA without being a member of the OECD. So the OECD is the Organization of Economic Cooperation and mm -hmm. Development. It's the roughly 28 of the wealthiest countries in the world. Well, that, there are a uh, bit more. There are a bit more. But more we had we had 28 member countries in the IEA when when I started. Mm -hmm. Then uh, it were oil-consuming countries, of course. Then uh, Estonia became 29, and two years ago, it was the number 30. That was Mexico. Hmm. But the the important thing is between 1974 and uh, 2015, there were quite a few changes, because security of supply at the beginning was security of oil supply. And later on, it grew into security of energy supply, where renewables, and that was during my mandate, mm -hmm. renewables were considered as a real important part of energy supply in general. Not only fossil fuels, but renewables. So. That's right. Well, I remember the oil price shocks of the 1970s, and I've certainly studied and written about them a lot. But I want to take us back probably a decade prior to that. You mentioned mm. the coal to natural gas transformation as the North Sea natural gas was discovered. And the, Honingen, also the Honingen field. The Honingen was, field. Of those days, that was yeah. the, biggest, the biggest field ever discovered. Exactly. And also the pictures from the 1950s and 60s in Europe of the coal-fired chimneys and the soot mm -hmm. and how bad it was. And so it was a natural transformation, almost a fortuitous one, to have natural gas in the North Sea to have a cleaner burning fuel. Can you talk about that transformation, that transition, and put it into context for what we are thinking about today as we try to transition again? Well, the point was, I was living in the south of the Netherlands, and that was the mining district we had there. And the whole economy was based on those mines, and we had quite a few of them. And so when the government decided that and announced that they were going to be shut down, it came as a real shock because it was not only an energy transition because the transition from coal to gas, but it was also an economic transition and it was a societal transition because many people were dependent for their income, for their jobs on the mines. And, well, you can imagine when that is going yeah. to be gone, well, then they need to have other things to get to, to get worth living for. So that's why uh, when what we see now, where we are, doing now in another energy transformation in quite a few countries. Again, it's not only about the energy, it's also about the economy, it's about jobs, it's about society. So that means that you have to plan this. You can't do it just overnight. You have to plan it. You have to take your time for it and see to it that people get new hope to have mm -hmm. a job after or during the transition period. And how long did that take between people closing down the mines, getting retrained, and the economy growing again? Well, altogether, it took us about 30 years before that the economy recovered. We, we got a university. We got a new open university because we, we, we didn't have that in the southern part of the Netherlands. 
And one of the, we got some new offices coming to the south. We got some new companies, enterprises setting up their, their business. But it was really absolutely necessary to bear in mind that it also cost money. And the money came from the provincial authorities, from the national authorities, and from Europe. This happened not only in the southern part of the Netherlands, this transition from coal to gas. It also happened in the northern part of France. It happened in some parts of the UK. It happened in, uh, in Luxembourg. It did not really happen in Germany. There we see a different kind of transition because they wanted to phase out nuclear. That's why they put a lot of money into renewables and uh, a lot mm -hmm. of subsidized solar and wind. But now they phased out nuclear, but their CO2 emissions did not go down because they did not phase out coal and lignite. That's something they have to do now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so again, it comes with the same kind of... Uh, social issues. Social issues. Social issues. Yes. I mean, they call it a just transition, right? They call it a just transition. And at the moment in Europe, there's a lot of discussion going on about the next phases of the energy transformation, about the energy transition, and what that means for countries like Germany, a relatively rich country, but also for a country like Poland, a relatively poor country, and other countries that are still depending on the coal economy. Well, so similarly for China, where I think, I don't know the exact yeah. number, it's like 2 million coal miners or something like that. Like that. Yes. I mean, and they are still opening up more coal mines. They're mm -hmm. still doing that. Yeah. So that means that the whole issue of coal mines is not off the table. No, no. Well, that's good context just in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, people talk about this transition happening very urgently and needing to happen in 10 years. And that's a great example of just all the pieces that need to come yeah. together. I want to switch a little bit to talk about the IA. It's interesting you have a background in education and politics. So yeah. I guess that sets you up well to lead the IA. More and more, the IA is an important part of it is not just energy security, but energy education, in that a lot of people now want to know about the future of energy demand, how fast we're going to move to zero emission types of energy. And a lot of people are looking at the IA as, you know, a credible source of information, a trustworthy source of information, and a much broader set of data about not just fossil fuels, but about renewables and alternative energies as well. So you can talk a little bit about under your time there, mm -hmm. you had the foresight to think about, you know, it has to become a broader organization. It has to think about all energy types. Just a little bit of your thinking at the time when that mandate was expanded. What was very important to me was that the renewable energy sources are part of energy security as well. And if you look at it that way, it's not just about oil and gas, it's also about other issues. So the consequence of that was that next to an uh, annual market report on coal, oil and gas, we also had an annual market report on, on renewable energy. So what is happening in that world? Like that, you have a state-of-the-art report on what has happened in the past years and what are the trends that are already visible. Things like that are very important. And what we can see now, that this is going to be continued and that the, is, the item, for instance, of sustainability is broader. It's not just about um, renewable energy, but having a sustainable energy supply covers many issues. It also covers the, the, the fossil issues, but it also covers that the fossil fuels have to be extracted in a sustainable manner, in a sustainable mm -hmm. way. And this is something that you can see also now in publications of, of the IA. The other thing I think is important, that is that energy security matters to all of us, to all countries, so not only to the member countries of IA, but also to others. So what we started in my days, the association with other countries like China, India, 
Indonesia, South Africa, is now going to be put into reality. So they are not member there, but there's a very close cooperation. And things like that are very important. And I think what you mentioned just, Jackie, that, that the IEA is a very reliable supplier of data. I think that's exactly the reason why you need an agency like that. Well, and it's interesting, you know, the scenarios that the IA puts out are just so well used now, right? There's the scenario around business as usual, where oil demand and, and fossil fuel demand continues to increase. There's this one called stated policies, which is that countries commit to the commitments they made under the Paris Agreement. That doesn't get us to a 1.8 degree world, but it gets us to the commitments they made. And then there's this sustainable development scenario where the world achieves the goal of reducing uh, long-term warming below 1.8 degrees C. Now, there's been some controversy, interestingly enough, this year, even though those scenarios have been mm -hmm. out there for a long time, some people are saying that the stated policies is kind of the base case, and that people are saying, no, we want to go to the low-carbon future. The IEA should be saying that the base <laughs> case is the uh, low-carbon scenario, even though the government policies in place aren't anywhere close to achieving that. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are your thoughts about that? debate? Well, I think the IEA is right in not doing that, because, you know, you have to have a real, reliable and trustworthy scenario, and that's not an idealistic scenario. It is not just what we want to happen, but it is what, from a realistic point of view, could and should happen. And I think that is what they are doing. That is what they are doing now. So I, I think it's important also to realize that all these scenarios are based on data, And these data go back to facts and figures. So if you really want to have something else that is more idealistic, more targets and things like that, you have to realize that it's also very important how to implement these targets. And I think what they are doing now is really showing that it can be done with this new scenario, but it will require a lot of efforts. And let's, let's see how it works out. And, you know, it's a scenario. It's not Anything else but a scenario, it's a like the other scenario. Yeah, it's a scenario with targets. And, you know, what's interesting is that the International Energy Agency, energy, mm. sort of speaks about the energy mix of all the different fuels, fossil fuels, renewables, etc. Yes. And even uh, nuclear. And nuclear. That the Paris goals are an emissions reduction goal, yes. ultimately. Yet all these scenarios are fuel substitution goals. And I say, okay, like the objective is to reduce emissions. The objective isn't to put oil and gas out of business, for example. Because to me, uh, as you know, from the 1970s, yeah. it's like displacing fuels is an extremely difficult, complex thing fraught with the social issues that you yeah. talk about. But we actually do have technology to reduce emissions. So why don't we get back to talking about reducing emissions rather than substituting out fuels? I think you're right. The point is how to reduce emissions. That's the target. And we, we have to reduce emissions because the emissions are part of the climate mm -hmm. change. They, yeah. are, they are the back of climate change. We have to reduce emissions. CO2 is one, but methane is another one. And there big are some one. other, yeah. there's another big one. So we have to reduce emissions. But the emissions are coming, of course, from the use of energy and the greater part of emissions are energy-related emissions. So you have to look at what kind of fuels could be part of this low-carbon future and what 
kind of fuels will be very difficult to be part of that low carbon mm -hmm. future. And then I'm talking about coal. And that's something that we should realize that although it flattens the use of coal flattens, it doesn't flatten everywhere. And there are countries like China where it doesn't mm -hmm. flatten at all. So we have to bear that in mind as well. That means that you have to, you have to look into new technology, into science, technology and innovation to see to it how to reduce emissions. And, you know, it's in my view, getting the oil and gas companies out of our system and get them not being in business anymore, that is not the objective. I Although agree. it might be the objective of some. Huh? Yes, but it's it is. Not, but it's not the objective we are talking and about. And I appreciate that it's, it's an emotional objective. It actually goes back to the 1970s and even before yeah. that, that, that was, you know, people have long reviled the oil and gas business. But we've got a real problem, which is how do we reduce emissions? Exactly. But in my view, there are a number of stakeholders that should play their role. And of course, there is the policy in setting targets. That's sure. one thing. The second are the, is the industry itself by seeing to it that they lower emissions of their operations, for instance. They can do that. They are working on that already. And then, of course... The thing is how to develop new kind of fuels that can answer also to this, yeah. the need of reducing emissions. Yeah. So we have three objectives and we have to bring them together. And, you know, if companies like oil and gas companies really take that seriously, they know they have to change their business model. They, they have to invest in all kinds and all these Absolutely. kinds of things because they want to stay in business. Well, of huh? course, and they will become more efficient. But I want to talk to you about the fourth element yep. because you come from a country that has culturally instilled into its population the idea of conservation and efficiency mm -hmm. and being mindful about consumption. Yeah. And the consumer has to be part of this oh, equation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, uh, what, yeah, yeah. Will the International Energy Agency push more in this age of Greta Thunberg and others that are exposing the consumption side of the problem? In, in amplifying the message that we are not going to achieve any Paris agreement or any kind of agreement unless the consumer well, is part of the solution. To be very honest, I cannot answer your question because I'm not, not part anymore. of the IEA anymore. Yeah. So I can't answer that question. But I think it's, it's important that you're not only looking at supply, because that was what you have been talking uh, before, mm -hmm. but you have to look at demand and the quality of demand as well. And that is where the consumer plays a part. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, it's interesting because the IA puts out these regular annual reports on efficiency mm -hmm. and all the opportunity there is for efficiency. But every year, primary energy demand goes up 2% and we don't oh, yeah. seem to gain. You know, They've for a long time beat on that. Mm -hmm. like we've got to get more efficient and uh, it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, yeah, efficiency is fleeting. It's happening in some countries, but... But you, you know, have some problems with efficiency. When you, look at when, you, when you look at building efficiency, for instance, that is very, very difficult. You have efficient cars, but what we have seen that although the car efficiency has have, has come up, the number of kilometers being driven has come up as well. So, and that's where the consumer sure, and the size of a vehicle is going up. Yeah. So it's not yeah. as easy as it as it sounds, no. and the consumer, no. or you and I, huh? Sure. We are consumers. We are part of the energy transformation as well. We have to be. I mean, let me look at the consumer choice in vehicle. If uh, somebody who buys a vehicle that is a larger, heavier vehicle, say SUV, pickup truck class, will emit four times as much CO2 per kilometer as a mm. small passenger vehicle. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that the solutions to the climate change issue are actually not technological at all. You can cut emissions by three quarters just by the consumer choices that you make. Now, I'm not one to preach to people as what they should drive. 
I am just saying that if we are all going to be part of the solution, then the consumer has to make wiser choices. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's part of back to the beginning of our conversation. Mm -hmm. The IA puts out these forecasts and says, this is the track we're on. No, no, scenarios. Scenarios, scenarios, yes. They put out these scenarios and say, you know, based on the government policy and what's going on today, this is where we're going. And it would be a real disservice to say, oh, actually, no, we are going down this low-carbon scenario because we do need to remind people all the time that we need different choices. Let's switch to LNG. The Mm -hmm. reason you came to Canada is to talk about LNG and markets globally, and that's something that's very important to Canada because we have our one big project, but we'd hope to have others because we have a huge resource here in terms of natural gas. When we think about this lower carbon future, do you see a role for natural gas when we think out 20 years and beyond? Yes, I think it's very important that LNG is going to play a role in an energy transition, in the energy transition or the energy transformation in the future. You know, if you only look at what's happening with coal, there is still too much coal in, around in the world. LNG, gas could be an answer to that. There's Coal to gas switch is one of the things that we have been working on at uh, at CIPSO, at the Klingendal International Energy Programme, because we, in our view, is absolutely important to have this coal to gas switch. But it's not only about gas, about natural gas. It's also about gases, the plural form of it, because there's more than natural gas, and that's where hydrogen comes into the mm, picture. Yeah, it comes into that, the picture yeah. as well. And I, I heard your podcast uh, about hydrogen, which was really fascinating for me. It's because it shows that there is more than one solution how to create. That's not the right mm-hmm. word, but I think you understand what yeah. I mean. How to get to hydrogen. It's, it's, it, you can do it uh, using, using renewables. So you can do it using, uh, uh, well, uh, different ways, using, using CO2 as well. But the other thing is how to get it from these oil deposits and keeping the CO2 underground, under right. the surface. And I think this might be, but of course it's just on lab mm. scale, but this might be also one part of the solution. And why do I mention it? Because... In my view, you have to look at different solutions and not just pick one as a winner and say, to this is the technology we want to have. Right. Because it's what you said, it's about getting into a low carbon world. So see to it that you bring down emissions. And that means that you have to follow different pathways and LNG Gas, natural gas is one of them. Okay, well, that, that is exciting. And it's also super exciting that you listen to our podcast. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to tell everyone that Maria van der Hoven listens to our podcast. So that's exciting. Well, it was, it was interesting, you. It was very interesting. And it was enlightening as well. Yeah. Well, okay. So hydrogen is one of those yeah. things that could replace natural gas. But back to uh, natural gas. Uh, let's talk a little bit more short term about Canada, especially with this LNG Canada project. Is arguably cheaper to deliver gas to Northern Asia than the United States. So I'm just looking at some WoodMac data, and I can put a link to this in mm-hmm. our podcast that shows that we're about a dollar cheaper, according to LNG Canada's numbers, than the average project in the United States to deliver to Northern Asia. So considering we have this economic advantage, why are the Americans doing so much better than us? For context for our listeners, they're going to have about 10 BCF per day of projects exporting here in the next few years, and we're going to have our one project which will export about 2 BCF per day. So they're really beating us from that perspective. Well, now you are saying something that might be true in the future, because up till now, LNG Canada is not running. Yeah, that's so true. That's yeah, but it's one. under construction. It's under construction. Yeah. And before answering your question, let me say something else. I think it's absolutely necessary that LNG Canada is really 
getting to be up and running because at the moment you have your LNG, but you export it just to one customer. That's your southern neighbor. But that southern neighbor in a few years' time will be completely self-sufficient in gas. So it's not waiting any longer for Canadian gas to be imported right. to Canada. So you have to find, Canada has to find new outlets for the gas. And LNG Canada is, is I think, a huge example of what it can be. And I really hope that there will be more projects. But let's get this first one done first. Now, coming back to the price... The interesting thing is, it's not only about the price that is going to be paid for the LNG, but it's also about freight costs. And when you look at the position of LNG Canada Terminal and the distance to the Asian market, that's around 10 days. And that's a lot shorter than when you have to go from the Gulf through the Panama Channel and then to Asia, or you have the other way around. So there are other aspects that are important to, to bear in mind. It's not just the production costs. Well, there's a, two other dimensions to this. First of all, I want to come back to this dollar cheaper and the uh, transportation advantage. It wasn't long ago, certainly a couple of years, I think the price of LNG globally on the spot market was close to $10. Now it's under 6 and in Europe, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, I don't know, it's probably under four, if not under three, that a dollar on 10 bucks is, okay, that's interesting. But as you get more competitive, a dollar on, say, five or six dollar price is huge. And I think that this is how LNG Canada will really shine and be positioned. And the second dimension, of course, is on the CO2 because mm -hmm. it's further north, so it's colder in terms of being able to liquefy the natural gas as less energy input. And also much of the liquefaction energy comes from hydroelectric power, which is zero emission. Yeah. So in other words, there are other benefits yeah. that go together with LNG from Canada and that do not go with LNG from the United States or from Russia. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that shorter shipping distance, do you see that as like an energy security benefit? Like obviously, it's economic. That was kind of driven into the numbers. But are there other aspects to yes, it as well? Yes, there are other aspects because... Um, uh, if you see now where the LNG for that's head, heading for the Asian market comes from, it many of it comes from the Gulf, from the Arabian Gulf. So there is a huge bottleneck there. It's called the Strait of Hormuz. And that is a real also uh, mm -hmm. well bottleneck where supply can be endangered. Well, we have seen now this attack on this Saudi Arabian oil facility. It was oil, but you can imagine that it also well. It was perceived as an uh, as a very difficult issue also on the Asian market. So there are other issues that can be complementary to uh, mm -hmm. to what we have just mentioned. Now, in your talk that you just gave at the Petronas Speaker Series, you talked about Canada could think more innovatively about how we do the commercial structures, that that could be a differentiator. Maybe just expand a little bit on that. One of the things that struck me is that now with the, the LNG Canada, you have five companies that are working together in this endeavor. That means that you have a, a portfolio approach, and that this is something I think it's very important, and engaging companies from countries that actually will be your future market. I think it's very wise. So that's one thing that is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really important. But nevertheless, we are talking just about one project. And if it, if that's the only project, well, then it's not going to be very helpful. So some more projects will be needed. And well, I, I looked into all the, the projects that were on the table a few, a few years ago, but none of them materialized. So it's not only important to have projects, but also to have the regulatory hurdles being taken, have the FIDs being taken and things like that, and get, then get the thing built and up and running. Right. Yeah. You know, the ESG 
movement mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the imposition of much stricter environmental, social, and governance standards. We've talked about a lot on our podcast, and it's coming fast. It's being imposed by the financial industry. Yeah. It has the potential to differentiate Canada yes. conclusively I agree. when the numbers come out. You agree? So yes, I agree. The question that I'm getting quite routinely now is, will international buyers start to discriminate based on suppliers that have lower carbon emissions, that have better social and governance standards? Well, the interesting thing, it starts with the financial sector mm-hmm. because they want all these ESG criteria being upfront and not afterwards as an explanation, but they want to have it in the design. They want to have to, they want to see it first. Investors want to have want mm-hmm. to have the right information. So it starts with the investors. It starts with the financial sector and it will surely have an impact on buyers as well. Maybe not immediately, but it will certainly happen. Well, let me give you one example, but it's a political example. In Europe, there's a huge discussion about Russian gas because we do, Europeans don't want to be dependent more, want to, mm-hmm. don't want to be more dependent on Russian gas as they are now. And there, of course, there is the thing with the Ukraine transit route. So there are more reasons than just the price that will have an impact on what buyers are going to do. It's financial, it's ESG, but it can also be political. It can be, you know, but you're, you're citing examples of energy security, which are certainly top of mind and have been top of mind since the 1970s, as we talked about earlier. But I'm thinking of, will buyers put greater emphasis on things, for example, like uh, transparency of governance, social, ethical issues, and Mm -hmm. of course, environmental standards? Because, you know, we can argue that some of the countries that are supplying Europe with natural gas are not as transparent as say Canada. Maybe. Yeah, I think they will. Mm-hmm. And when you compare Canada with its transparency, with its regulation, with its uh, regulation also on the environment with other countries, then Canada is really three at the top. So and why do we have such not. a bad reputation? I mean, well, even in Europe. Maybe it would be good that you talk a little bit more about it and that your companies are a bit more proud of what they are mm. doing because, you know, they are doing a good job. And if you don't mention it to them, if you don't let it be known to uh, to other people, well, then you can't expect them to know about it. If mm-hmm. you are not proud of it yourself and talk about it and, and you walk your talk, your companies walk their talk. Right. So you have to, it's something that they have to be done doing as well. You can't blame others for your bad reputation if you don't do something about your bad reputation yourself. When it comes to LNG in Canada, I think we do have some of the lowest carbon LNG in the world because we have very strict methane rules coming. We have a lot of hydropower that fuels it. We have very strict standards around the facilities. Lower intensity for the the facility itself. Yes, you have them. So do people appreciate that? Like if you ask someone in Europe today, do you think Canadian LNG is low carbon? They don't know about it. Okay. Yeah. So it's something we need to get the message of course. out. Right? It's all communication, yeah. it's, promotion. You know, the masters of no, this no, are the, the, the Norwegians are masters They're of this. They're masters of it. You yeah. know, they have, the, they have the Norwegian Wealth Fund, which is completely based on their oil and gas. Sure. Uh, so they're the masters resources. of brand management. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and they just uh, launched a brand new platform in the North Sea that yeah. is one kilogram of CO2 per barrel, right? So they are advertising that as the yeah. one of the yeah, lowest okay, carbon no, sources you know, of oil. I, you know, try and convince somebody here to go drilling in the Arctic waters, uh, they have somehow managed to overcome that 
objection. And I argue that it's it's just what you were saying, Maria. It's good communication and brand management. And we are responsible producers. We do it with safety, yeah, governance, yeah. transparency. You, you walk your talk. Uh, you so walk let, your talk. Let, so yeah. let it be known. Yeah, let it be known. And we, we yeah. have not to this point been good. But I think things are changing. And that's a positive thing. All right. I want to ask one more question. A very live debate here in Canada around LNG is there's, you know, one group of people, one camp, I'll call them, that says, mm-hmm. You know, we can't afford to grow our LNG business because it will increase our domestic greenhouse gas emissions and make it difficult, if not impossible, to meet our Paris target, you know, if we grow this industry. The other camp says, well, you know, in reality, by us having our low-carbon LNG and sending that to Asia and displacing coal that would be used for power and even displacing other sources of LNG that may be higher carbon than us, we're actually doing a positive thing for the environment because all things the same, global emissions are lower in that scenario. What is the right answer here? Which camp are you in? (laughs) You know, I don't like that kind of questions because I always give the wrong answer. (laughs) (laughs) I always give the wrong answer. But what I do know is that if a country like Canada is really having this kind of lower carbon and other sources of supply, your LNG has. You have strict rules to limit methane leaking. You mentioned it, hydropower, low intensity for the facility itself. You're doing all these kind of things. Why shouldn't you share that with other countries? When we are talking about the Paris Agreement and see to it that you have to achieve the targets, I fully understand it. But it's not only about Canadian LNG. It's about more. It's also about agriculture. It's about transport. It's about shipping. It's about aviation. And you mentioned it. On the other hand, what you can see, you have, you produce your LNG with lower carbon. Why shouldn't you share that with the world? Yeah, because th- we are talking about a global issue of global warming and of climate change. I, I think this is, you just hit on a point that really resonates with me because this argument that, oh, we are displacing Chinese coal with Canadian gas. Okay, it's, it's, it's an okay argument. I buy into it, but it's a weak argument and it doesn't really get into promoting the Canadian brand, mm-hmm. which is what really needs to be promoted. Uh, and, you know, Maria, you just said, you know, lower carbon intensity, transparency, social justice, uh, and the list governance. I mean, the it's list, there. It, it, it's, it's all here. If we focus on all the things that we excel at and pledge to continue to improve on, ultimately, I would hope better than being in Norway, better than being Norwegian standards, then I think we'll have something to really stand up and be proud of. And that will supersede any sort of vague argument about, oh, we're going to displace some power plant in Shenzhen in China. Like, it's just, it's too far away for people to understand. Well, and another important point that you said is that, hey, we have opportunities to reduce other emissions to offset this. And I actually think our oil and gas sector, you know, our in Canada, that's responsible for about a quarter of all the emissions mm-hmm. in Canada. You know, if we can reduce our emissions aggressively across the sector, then the idea of having one LNG terminal isn't such a, you know, viewed the same way. Yeah, but it's you not know. just emissions. It's the whole package, right? It's yeah. E, S, and G. We've talked about mm-hmm. that on this program. Like, if we can get capital E, capital S, and capital G, and as Maria says, promote that around the world, she's telling us Europeans aren't hearing it, and others are not hearing it, right? They don't know about it. Well, like, okay. let's get on it. We got to get our work done. We need. We got yes. a lot of work to do. Well, good luck, guys. <laughs> thank you. Well, Maria Vanderhoven, thank you so much for being with us. It's a real honor to have you, and uh, I can't wait to get back to your country, the Netherlands, <laughs> which uh, I so enjoy. I think it's just one of the most civilized countries in the world, not the least of which because of your fantastic art galleries, which I love touring. But anyway, thank you very much. How can people get a hold of you at uh, at your institutes? 
Well, I'm, uh, as I mentioned, I'm senior fellow at the Klingendal International Energy Program. You can find it uh, on the website, so yeah. that's no problem at we'll, all. We'll put a link uh, to yeah. the website yeah. right okay. on the show notes. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me here. And let me tell you one thing. I like Canada. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. <laughs>